I enjoy listening to old sermon collections. And one of the men that I enjoy listening to and try to find more listening behind him was a preacher of generation past by the name of S.M. Lockbridge. S.M. Lockbridge preached many tremendous messages. One of them was called, That's My King. The message that he preached most probably that is most uh, popular was the message that he entitled, It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And I know that there, there, are, there is a theological divide. Did Jesus die on Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday? Now, I want to give you the truth about it. I'm not giving you the truth of which day it was. I don't care which day he died. And I will leave all of the theologians to debate whether it was Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I just rejoice in the fact that he died. And not that he died and died alone, but that he rose again. After all, what is time to God? I take you back in the New Testament to the portion of Scripture. Jesus and the disciples were at a wedding. And Jesus' mother realizes, I think she is a type of host of the wedding, maybe in charge of the reception. And they have run out of wine, and she comes to Jesus thinking he can do something about this. And you do, do you remember what the Lord Jesus said to her at that time? Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Time becomes important. I fast forward to Luke chapter 22, the story of the Last Supper. Jesus has had the disciples prepare, and he tells them that the hand of he who will betray me is here at the table. And then Jesus, after they have eaten, takes on the, the robe and the, the towel. And he says, I've come to, to serve you. And he serves them. I think it interesting that in verse 31 of Luke 22, he addresses one man in particular out of all. And he says, he looks to him and says, Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. Now, I don't know about how you feel. I want to be on Jesus' prayer list. But I have prayed for you that thy faith fail not. Here's an interesting phrase. And when thou art converted... There are a lot of people in the world today who are much like what Peter was, associated with God. Peter was associated with the Lord. He'd walked with him, ministered with him. But I believe if we dug into the Scripture, we'd find this. He had not yet truly been converted. Again, you know I tell you often that they were looking for a Messiah, but a different kind of Messiah. They were looking for the military muscle. They were looking for someone that was going to come and deliver them from persecution, help them with their taxation, get them out from under the oppression of a government that was riding over them. That's what they were looking for, but that's not why Jesus was coming. 
And Jesus said, I prayed for you that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, when you really believe, we know that shortly after this, Jesus walks into the garden. His soul is very heavy, and he says, I'm sorrowful, even unto death. His spirit is so heavy because Jesus knows what's getting ready to happen. In fact, we're told in the book of Mark, chapter 14 and verse 35, and he went further a little ways and fell on the ground and, and he prayed that if it be possible, the hour might pass from him. And then when we go to Mark, chapter 14 and verse 44, and he cometh a third time. Remember he told what he told the disciples to do? Watch and pray, watch and pray, watch and pray. Three times he came and they were asleep. And this time he said, sleep on. And here's his statement. The hour has come. Mine hour has not yet come. The hour. And now again he says, the hour has come. If you're in Luke 22 and physically able to do so, would you stand in respect to the word of the Lord? And let's read together. Beginning in verse number 47, and all these things that I just told you have transpired up to this moment. Last Supper, realization of him being betrayed, the warning to Peter, you're going to betray me. The garden scene, Jesus in emotional agony. And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them, and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? And when they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? I stopped long enough to say this. Should we have a physical reaction? Should we have an emotional reaction? Should we be violent? Should we step up to your defense? Should we have a civil resistance against this? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. From the other gospels, we know that this is Peter, and he cuts off Malchus' ear. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear, and he healed him. Jesus is on his way to a courtroom, and to a cross. And yet his mind is still with others. Then Jesus said unto the chief priests and the captains of the temple and the elders, which were come to him, Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves. When I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. It's no longer mine hour. It's no longer the hour. Notice what he says. This is your hour. And I want us this morning, as we can, to travel through their hour. Pray with us, please. Father... May your intentions be accomplished during this service. And may your 
word be accurately portrayed, taught, and preached. Empty me of self and forgive me of anything that might hinder me from being usable in the eyes of the Lord. Speak to your people as you would through me. And I will be privileged and I'll thank you for the opportunity to do so. Help us as we study your very words. This is your hour. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated if you would please. And wouldn't it have been a marvelous thing to have been at that first Easter sunrise service? We know that the congregation was small that morning. The four Gospels tell us of Mary and Mary Magdalene. It tells us of the angel of the Lord. And Luke adds, Salome was there. And Luke also said, and certain others. It was a small crowd that was there. Many of them were ladies who had come to prepare the body of Christ for its final, final burial. And I want you to remember what they have seen just days before. The crucifixion. Death is never a pretty thing. Death for me is always a troubling thing. Sonia and I were on the interstate on Thursday evening and passed by an accident scene in which there was a fatality. I looked to the left side of the median strip and there across part of the vehicle and onto the ground there was a white sheet. The rest of the night my mind thought, I wonder who that was. I thought of life changed. I stopped and prayed for them. I've been in rooms, hospital rooms, where people have passed. Death is always troubling, but this is not a natural death. This is the most violent death that has ever been recorded. And these were they which had witnessed it, and now they're coming to prepare Jesus' body. These folks were weary from the lack of sleep. Their anxieties and their emotions had been very vivid in the hours previous. They had been crushed by the tragedy of Calvary because all of their hope, the hope of Easter was not yet theirs. The hope of resurrection was not yet theirs. The scenes of the crucifixion was in their imagination. It was in their heart. They arose early that morning, as the Bible tells us, they began to make their way. In their mind as they traveled, I wonder if they, if in their ear they could not remember the cracking of the whip and the vision of the blood and the darkness that covered the entire earth and if nothing else, just what nature did. Nature that God had created at the moment that Jesus died on the cross. Nature was disturbed. The Bible tells us that the earthquake and the sun refused to shine and darkness covered the earth. And the tombs were shaken open. And that the Old Testament saints came out of their tombs. These are not a natural thing. I want us to step through some scenes this morning as we evaluate what Jesus said as he looked at his captors and said, this is your hour. We see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26, Luke chapter 14, or Mark chapter 14, Luke chapter 22, and in John chapter 18. As best we can tell by looking at the culture of the day and the tradition of the day, somewhere about one o'clock in the morning, Jerusalem is 
coming to life. You've got to remember what this is. This is the Passover time. Jerusalem is coming to life. The expectancy of the day, not of Jesus, but the day. You know what it is when something exciting is going to happen, a celebration is going. You know what it is Christmas Eve in a physical sense. Children have a hard time sleeping and anticipation and expectation is there. And all of Jerusalem was in anticipation of what was going to happen at Passover, Passover hour. The, the, uh, uh, the city is coming to life. And not far at that same time, not far outside the city walls was a garden surrounded by trees. These trees were olive trees. As we would look that way, on the opposite side of the cedron, you would see the figure of a man laying out across the ground. The Bible tells us he was sweating as if it was great drops of blood. Suffice for me to say, he is in emotional agony. And we would recognize that person as being Jesus Christ. And he said, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. That's what he told his disciples. But then we see him struggling alone. I see Christ as he rose from his prayer and coming back. And could you not watch? Could you not pray for just a couldn't you be with me for just an hour? It's what the scripture says. But on the third time he said, Sleep on, take your rest. He could see the torches coming through the garden. He could hear the clanging of the metal. Now he gets the vision of Judas moving forward toward him. Judas is leading the whole collection and congregation of people. And Jesus recognizes who the people are. And he asks him the question that we read in our text. Betrayest thou me with a kiss? They looked up at him dumbfounded. And the Son of Man is betrayed and he's put into the hands of sinners. And they lead Jesus away and Jesus says, this is your hour. Scripture records that they laid their hands on him and they took him. Scripture records that Peter drew his sword, impetuous Peter, always wanting to do something, but most of the time doing it out of emotion. The Lord reattached the ear of Malchus. In verse 56 of Mark 14, it said, And all this was done that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. And as they took Jesus away, you remember how heavy his spirit was? And he said, This is your hour. But if I could borrow that phrase, not the message, this is your hour. But Sunday's coming. Jesus before the Jewish authorities on his way to his own death. The scripture says the band and the captains of the officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. And he led him to Caiaphas, the high priest. And the scribes and the elders there assembled. And he was taken into questioning. This triumvir was not interested in truth. This government was not interested in truth. They could care less about hearing the truth. And the scriptures tells us this, 
Now the chief priest and the elders and all the council sought false witness against him, against Jesus, to put him to death. They are actually looking for people that would witness against Jesus, testify against Jesus, of things they had not seen, of things they had not heard, false witnesses. The Bible says, but found none, yea, though many false witnesses came. None of them basically were standing up. And then it says that last two came and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. That was the charge. That was the witness. This is a group that is judging Jesus as morally bankrupt. And they're concerned with their own selves and their own place. They prove to us their depravity. They prove to us their callousness. And they sit in judgment before him. And they say he's guilty of death. And Matthew says that they spit upon his face and they buffeted him and they smote him with the palm of their hand across this way. And I don't mean just, but forcefully smack across the face of Jesus as they buffeted him. And Christ stood silent. And Caiaphas and the scribes and the elders, each of them pronounced guilt. And Jesus said, this is your hour. But heaven said, Sunday's coming. The next scene is in Pilate's hall, the chief priests, the elders, and Caiaphas. They don't have the authority to put Jesus to death, so they take him before Pilate, who does. And here's what Pilate says four times. I find no fault in it. How do I do this? Do you remember what Pilate's wife said? Don't have anything to do with this. I'll not go into it for sake of time this morning, but she says, I, I had a dream about this. I wonder if she had heard of Jesus. I wonder if she may not have been in the city when some of the miracles were performed. But something did not set right with her. And she said, don't, don't have anything to do with this. Multiple times, Pilate gives them the opportunity to back off, but they weren't interested again in truth. They were interested in death. And Pilate walks over to a basin and he does a physical thing. He washes his hands and he said, his blood is off of my hands and on yours. Pilate asked him, are you indeed the king? And Jesus' simple response was, thou sayest. Pilate said, what do you want me to do? He's innocent. What can I do? And they said, crucify him. You crucify, you have authority. You have power to do that. Matthew's gospel records Pilate washing his hands. And to Pilate, Jesus would say, this is your hour. 
And to Caiaphas, he says, this is your hour. And to the elders, he said, it's your hour. And to the scribes and the religious and the false witnesses, he said, this is your hour. But in his spirit, in this heavy spirit that is in agony, I wonder if he said to himself, this this is your hour, but Sunday is coming. Jesus is on his way to Calvary. Scourging was one of the most brutal forms of punishment known to man. It's hard for me to imagine that people would educate themselves on brutality. But we know this. We know that the Roman soldiers were educated in brutality. And they were educated in medicine. And they knew exactly what the body, the physical body, could take. They say, from what I can study and find, a cat of nine tails usually had two strands of it that were nothing but a lead ball. And the other strands were pieces of rock or steel or broken glass or some sharp instrument on the other seven. So that when they would cast this over the back, from the front and over the back, as more than likely Jesus is tied like this to the stake that the two lead balls in the weight would hit first. Imagine the damage that just two lead balls are doing with every time that it beats. And as they would pull that back, making ribbons of flesh on his back, we can't, we can't imagine. Hollywood, cinematography cannot paint the picture as it was. The Bible says that his visage, the viewing of him, he did not appear as a man. The Roman legions stepped forward after the soldiers have stripped him and they punish him by the scourging. And when he is near death, and they did this for every prisoner, when they're near death, they stop. And Jesus is untied and he slumps. And as he slumps, they require of him to carry the cross member of his cross, some 650 yards. The Roman soldiers see it as a joke. They begin to make ridiculous scoffings. We know that they gambled for his robe. We know that in his blindness and, and his inability to see, there's blood and sweat coming into his eyes. And they'd say, you tell us. If you're God, you tell us who hit you. And down that Via Della Rosa, which we know is the way of suffering, Jesus walked that way and the blood drips down onto the stony cobblestone pavement that is there. It drips off of his body and onto those stones. I remind you that Christ once said, when men refuse to praise me, the stones will cry out. God had created those stones. And to Caiaphas and the elders and the scribes and the crowd and to Pilate, he said, this is your hour. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him 
How could you think? How could Jesus think of what was before him? For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. There was no joy in the cross. When Jesus was looking at his cross, when he was thinking of what was going to happen, he wasn't seeing the cross. He was seeing the other side of the cross. He was seeing the Sunday side of the cross. He was seeing the salvation side of the cross. And they crucified Jesus. Legionnaire feels for the depressions in his hand and his wrists. And the spikes go through the wrist of Jesus and they bring his knees up to a bent place and one foot over the other and drive the next spike through his feet. And the Roman soldiers continue to laugh. And I wonder if through the stinging, burning eyes of Christ when he made contact with the Roman soldiers, if somehow he was in eye contact telling them, this is your hour. They said, if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. You saved others. Save yourself. And the angels of heaven looked on. And oh, for the love of God, you know that they wanted to do something. And they're stunned in disbelief that the Christ, the Lion of Judah, the King of Kings, the Son of the living God was being treated by the created in such a fashion. And before long, Jesus spoke the word, It is finished, and Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And when he did, all of nature convulses. This is your hour. And the earth shook. The Bible calls it an earthquake. And darkness fell at a time when it's not supposed to be dark. And the birds refused to sing. And the tombs opened. And hell rejoiced. And heaven stood amazed. This is your hour. But the Easter story doesn't end there. In fact, the cross is not the end. The cross is the beginning. For those of, who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, death is not the end. Death is the beginning. So we gather here today on this Resurrection Sunday... Matthew chapter 28 and verse number 5, Jesus has come out of the tomb and the angels are there and the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus which was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. I like this phrase. Just as he said. And I'll go a little further. And just as Isaiah said. And Jeremiah said, and 700 years prior to his birth, the Old Testament prophets prophesied of the day that he would come, the hour that he would suffer, but they all said there would be a resurrection morning. The cross is just the beginning. He is not here. He has risen as he said. Come see the place. We have nothing to hide. There's nothing in secrecy. We, 
hear the word transparency. It's all transparency. Come see the place where the Lord lay. He yielded himself to the cross and he slumps to die. And I want you to imagine this morning that in the regions of hell and in the presence of Satan, there was celebration. Now understand this. Satan is not yet bound to hell. One day he will be, but he's not today. You remember the Old Testament where the Lord, where God is talking to, uh, to Satan? And it, it's a story of Job, and he says, Whence comest thou, Satan? Where have you been? And Satan said, Up and down the earth. But I'll say this this morning. When Christ breathed his last breath on the cross, the devil rejoiced. Because in all of his sin, you remember he was created perfect, and in his pride he became imperfect, and he said, I will be like the Most High. And for generations he has tried to stamp out Jesus. Tried to keep him from being born. When he couldn't do that, he tried to keep him from living, and he put on the government's heart in order to kill all the male boys, so he couldn't stop him there. He's been trying to put him to death all of this time, and now he's celebrating because Jesus has taken his last breath. I've done it. I've been successful. He's gone. He's out of the way. I can do what I want to do. And there Jesus lay in the tomb. He was not in a coma. He was dead. It wasn't long thereafter that Satan began to hear rumblings. And hell's celebration is going to be cut short. The shouting and rejoicing of the demons is quickly being silenced. And Satan's joy turns to trembling. And Jesus begins to arise. And Satan begins to scream out to all of his demons, hold him down! Keep him! Don't let him go! Shut the gates! But all the gates of hell shook. Lift up your head. The king is coming through. And Jesus walks to Satan and strips him of his keys. The Bible said that he took the keys of death and hell. And every one of the keys on this ring gives me authority. Jesus took the keys of death and hell, and now we can say, Oh, death, where is thy sting? Grave, where is thy victory? And there was a moment of time. I can't explain it all. Did the stone roll away? It makes a good song. I saw some kids singing that little song this week. Roll away, roll away, roll away. Did did it roll off? Did the angels come and remove it? 
did Jesus push it from the inside? I don't know, but there was a moment when life came. There was a resurrection moment there. And thank God it's no longer their hour, it's his hour. It's no longer Thursday or Friday or Saturday, it's Sunday. And no longer will the borrowed tomb be occupied this morning, it's empty. And he had been humiliated between two thieves, and now he's walking in majesty in the midst of the congregation of his people. His head had been crowned with thorns, and now his head is going to be crowned with glory. His feet that were once pierced on the cross are feet, uh, the Bible says, that are as burning iron and polished brass. His voice that was hushed in death, now his voice is going to be the sound of what the Bible calls the living water. His hands that were once pierced and nailed to the tree are the hands that he reaches out to every sinner and says, come unto me. Thank God we live on this side the Sunday side of the cross. That court guard will never slap the face of Christ again. That was his hour. Jesus' hour has come. Pilate is never going to have the opportunity to give judgment against Christ again or to reverse what he has said. His hour has passed. It's Jesus' hour. The scourger who beat his back, the Roman soldiers who put him up to the cross, the Jewish skeptics that had laughed and mocked, even Roman Caesar. You'll never seal the grave of Christ because your hour is gone. Your hour is past. It's my hour now. We live on the Sunday side of the cross. Christian friend, I want to tell you this morning that in living on that Sunday side, we no longer have to be we no longer have to be discouraged. We no longer have to be weighted down. We no longer have to let the things of life overcome us. We don't have to let circumstances destroy us. I told you a few weeks ago, part of the problem with Christianity today is there's too many Eeyore Christians walking around. And the world would rather run from Christians than come to Christians. Today's a day of celebration. We live on the Sunday side of the cross. What bad thing could happen? Are there people doing to you what happened to Christ? No, not at all. The Bible says, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph. Jesus said to them, this is your hour. But Sunday is coming. Where are you this morning in a spiritual sense? What does this morning mean to you? What does the fact that Jesus Christ is risen, what does it mean to you? What does it, does it mean to you that we're living on the Sunday side of the cross. I pose that to every Christian that's gathered in this room. Why is today any different? There's, a, I think, the great significance of the Easter message.
You see, not long after this, and we'll be there next week as Jesus ascends up into the heavens. And the angels had to say this again to the disciples, fear not. And I know I'm taking liberty with what the Bible says. Fear not. You're on the Sunday side of the cross. The same Jesus that was taken up will so come in like manner as you've seen him go. Don't stand gazing. What does it mean to you? The world is having its hour. The world that we're living in today, this is their hour. Our country that was founded on the Bible, like it or not, it's been proven. Argue with it all you want to. Let's just go to D.C. and look at the cornerstones of every building. Our government was a government led by God. But we've pulled away from that, and this is their hour. Let me tell you something. In their hour, you can expect bad things. You can expect difficulty. You can expect opposition in their hour. This is your hour. But thank God, when you come to know Christ as personal Savior, you know and you learn to understand His hour. For Christians here today, don't be overcome because the world is doing what the world's doing. It's their hour. Don't be discouraged by what they're doing. Just dig in and do what you're supposed to do. Dig into the great command to reach into the world. I believe, I believe that in heaven you're going to meet some of the Roman soldiers that crucified Jesus. One of those Roman soldiers stood and looked at Jesus and said this, Truly, this man's the Son of God. So when it's their hour, just do what you're supposed to do. Remain faithful to our God. If you're here this morning and you do not know Christ as personal Savior, let me just for a moment speak to you. You have an hour. And I don't mean a clock hour. This is your hour. The Bible tells us that we're all sinners. And I'm going to be honest with you as a pastor, as a preacher, the Bible says that sin is fun. The Bible says that there's pleasure in sin. But the Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season. There's pleasure in sin for your hour. But just as the hour of the soldiers and the regiments and the legions, and Caiaphas, and Pilate, and the scribes, their hour came to an end. Your hour will come to an end. And the most important part of Resurrection Sunday is this. What have you done with Jesus? 
We don't have a Jesus that's on the cross. Don't think you're religious because you have a necklace that has Jesus on the cross. The real Jesus isn't on the cross. Don't think you're religious because you would bow in front of a tomb. The cross is empty and the tomb is empty. But the throne is full. And God gives us opportunity to come before the throne of God. And he says, if you'll accept who I am. You see, there was a time when Peter had not yet been converted. And Jesus knew that there was moments coming, there was time coming, even after the denial, when he would be converted. I'm the Jesus that the Bible, the Messiah that the Bible speaks of, not what you want. And let me tell you this. Christianity is not what everybody wants. We're tied up right now with a group of of Christians in this generation who are trying to make Christianity into what they want. They want to carve scriptures out. They want to take things away from it and say, I can make Christianity into what I want it to be. You can't do that. So for every soul that is here today, there's questions. What does this day mean to you? How has this day changed your life? How are you different because of this day? The Sunday side of the cross. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, if we may please. David said this, speaking to himself, Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in God. The only hope we have, it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from today, or what's going on in your life, your only hope is the Sunday side of the cross. Your only hope is through Jesus Christ. Now I want to ask this question, I do it each week. If you're here this morning, say, Pastor, this morning I'm not sure that I'm saved. I'm not sure that I have accepted who Christ is, the reality of it. I'm concerned about my eternity and what I've done with Jesus, and I want you to pray for me. I want to ask you to do this. Now, every head is bowed and every eye is closed. I want you to put your hand up.